real, real conversation. conversation and some hard truths. Hard truth. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. So hi, everyone, and welcome back with you. Coming at you with another episode in our series about China, as well as our co-host for this series, Calvin Krusty, senior partner and consultant with the Critical Risk team. So welcome, Calvin. Thank you very much. Looking forward to the discussion today with uh, Nick. We are continuing our discussion with experts on issues such as the Chinese Communist Party, organized crime, and information and hybrid warfare. Because of the growing influence on our nation from both outside actors and within, Calvin and I have put together this series of podcasts on these issues and more. And before I introduce our guest, I'm just going to clarify that when talking about China, we're talking about the Chinese Communist Party or CCP and their various arms of influence and coercion. This is distinct from the good people of China, the majority of whom are good global citizens and have contributed to the advancement and uh, prosperity of many nations. So with that, our guest today is Nick McKenzie. Nick is an investigative journalist with the Age News Agency in Australia. Nick has twice been named the Graham Perkin Australian Journalist of the Year. This award is given as one of Australia's preeminent prizes for journalism. Also, he's a winner of 10 Walkley Awards, hopefully I'm saying that right, which are awarded for excellence in journalism and to the best people in their craft. Nick investigates politics, business, foreign affairs, human rights, and criminal justice. So welcome, Nick. Great to be here. So uh, yeah, thanks for calling in from literally halfway around the world. Um, <laughs> you're technically in the future, so you have more insight to anything that's going on than us. <laughs> uh, but maybe we'll just start with a little bit of background on you before we get into um uh, what's been going on in, in current events, but uh, if you could kind of tell us about yourself and um, who you are, where you come from, and then we'll, we'll get into more in-depth stuff. Sure, yeah. I'm a journalist of uh, 20 years. I've worked at, in Australia and, and traveled around the world with my job, but uh, in that 20 years, I've focused basically the whole time on investigative journalism. So deep dives, looking at a whole range of different issues, but often coming back to some, some core issues, organized crime, corruption uh, in politics, corruption in sport, corruption in business. Uh, and more recently, looking at the overlap between organised crime, uh, Chinese Communist Party interference, uh, foreign interference in Australia. Australia was a, a, a really a canary in the coal mine when it came to the, the topic of CCP uh, interference. We were the, the first country uh, to really take notice of it a couple of years ago and introduce a program of significant legal reform. And that really came about due to the work of, of journalists across across the nation including myself, uh, a, a real case of investigative journalism working to shine a, a light uh, on something that was, was actually hiding in plain sight, uh, but uh, no one was doing a great deal about it until it hit the press. So I, I apply my craft to, to a whole range of, of different topics in the, in the same sort of way, which is in, and once I find something that needs investigating, we ask ourselves the question, is it in the public interest? Or does the public have a right to know? Is there a powerful or vested interest trying to cover something up uh, which needs to be held to account. And if the answer to those things is yes, then we start digging like mad, a bit like 
a police officer or, or an investigator. We you know, go down every borough we can find. We speak to as many people as we can. We use FOI, Freedom of Information Laws, to, to find documents. We get leaks uh, and we try to establish facts that, that certain people want hidden and, and broadcast them. So just uh, when you were talking about the investigative journalism and maybe the difference between investigative journalism and reporting, what would you consider investigative journalism to be? So is that just like the, the more of the deep dive, the lengthier investigations? Listen, I don't distinguish between the two. All journalism should be some sort of basic investigation. I mean, there's all sorts of, I guess, there's superficial journalism, which may not require a great deal of digging. Someone goes to a press conference and and that's about it. Uh, but you know, decent journalism requires a level of, of fact-finding and, and testing information. Uh, and investigative journalism is simply uh, journalism that requires a, a lot of that. And I think one thing that, that maybe helps people understand just how deep we do dive and how, how thorough uh, we, we, we can be as investigative journalists in Australia, we have a really pernicious defamation regime. It's very easy to be sued. Uh, anyone can, can issue a lawsuit against the journalist for uh, basically nothing, uh, a very cheap cost. Uh, and it's very hard for a journalist, due to our defamation laws, to defend themselves for a whole range of reasons. We, we, Sydney, New South Wales, has been called by the New York Times the defamation capital of the world. So when we do journalism, or when I do journalism, I'm looking to gather information not just that I could believe to be true and, and I believe needs to be published or broadcast, but which I could prove in a civil court of law to the standard of the balance of probabilities. And if you think about that, that can be quite a, a difficult task when you're investigating organised crime or corruption or espionage. And espionage obviously takes place in the dark. Very, very hard to get firm proof of it. Uh, if you were to accuse somebody, as I have, of espionage, uh, extremely difficult to prove that in a court, uh, but that's the task that that um, is is ahead of people like myself, and that's the task that that we tackle by you know, digging, 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 finding people who'll come to court, finding information that we can we can rely on in court, uh, and then using that information to publish, hoping we never get to court, but knowing if if we do, we've got a chance of defending ourselves. So, with that, is there any sort of oversight body for you, or is it literally just like an editor says? this sounds safe, like it's, it's been investigated enough, we can go ahead and print it? Oh, there's a really um, significant uh, set of, of uh, professional practices we, we undertake as, as journalists. Uh, there's a whole rigour in terms of the way that uh, my organisation, you mentioned I work at The Age, that's one of a, a number of newspapers uh, owned by my, my company, Nine. Uh, we run a te- the television network in Australia, the digital Outlets were the biggest media company in the country, and there's a, you know, hundreds of journalists across the country. There's editors, and a whole process of, of rigor and fact checking. On top of that, we have our, our code of ethics as journalists, which guide us in terms of integrity and honesty and, and proper practice. And of course, there's the public. Uh, people won't like or, or journalism; they won't read it, they won't buy the product, they won't consume it if they if they fail to trust it. The ultimate accountability, I think, is held by, is held by our, our audience. Uh, people uh, don't like bad journalism. They like good journalism. I think what we see now in the world is you know, people loving podcasts and all different sorts of uh, new media uh, that is giving old-fashioned journalism in, in a new way. But at the core of that is, is good storytelling, good digging, interesting 
interesting uh, tales uh, and facts that people deserve to know that are being covered up. And there's a real hunger for that. Well, definitely uh, evidenced by your investigation to Crown, uh, Crown Resorts. Like, I was reading through that whole thing. And, I mean, it's so uh, concise and to the point, but so much information in there. And uh, I actually sent it to a bunch of coworkers. They were getting right into it. They loved it. Um, but it, it overlaps a lot with the stuff going on in Canada. And um, maybe just before we do get into that, though, on kind of the topics we were just on, um, have you ever had, like, so I've read that you've had some sort of maybe threats against you. You've been sued. Have you ever had any political pressure? Do, do politicians ever really go after journalists? Absolutely. I mean, they're amongst the the class of people, that I guess, that we go after as reporters because it's our job to hold uh, politicians to account. But, uh, yeah, the only people who perhaps have thinner skins than journalists, we never like to be held to account ourselves despite saying otherwise, is, is politicians. They hate, they hate being scrutinised. Yeah. And they, also, they, they come after us in all different sorts of ways. Uh, I've been attacked from the floor of parliament under parliamentary privilege where you know, basically been smeared and slandered by politicians I've investigated. I've been sued by, uh, by politicians. Uh, you, know, you, you have uh, ongoing battles with politicians because they have very long memories and, they, uh, and they're good haters sometimes. That's that's just the hazard of the job. That's I mean, the, the core thing that we do as, as reporters, of course, is to scrutinise politics. That's where so much power is. I yeah. Uh, and I mean, I there, there is if you could go after organised crime uh, as well, it's, it's it's pretty. I mean, I, I often say I don't live in Russia or China. I can't be jailed for my my craft, and I'm not going to end up floating in the river uh, or poisoned. But you, know, you still cop some nasty threats. I've had to move out of my house because someone I, I was relying on for information was uh, was murdered. Uh, I've, I've, you know, we have a very serious and violent Italian organised crime mafia organisations in the country. I've, I've investigated and certainly um, cop threats from from uh, those sorts of people. Uh, I have cameras outside my house and I'm pretty surveillance conscious. Um, so. Uh, but all that said, yeah, it, it's a really good place to do journalism because we, we live in a pretty safe uh, country with, with systems of accountability and oversight, which, which are, pretty, are pretty good compared to other places. Yeah. Yeah, I always think about that. Like when I deal with people on the street, um, I work in our gang unit and, you know, just even with some of the people we deal with, um, we end up having to tell a lot of them. It's like, we're not bodyguards. Like I'm not there 24-7. So you got to be more vigilant and, and take your own safety into account, like how you're going to, what that's going to look like right um so i don't envy the task that you have uh so maybe kind of getting into uh i mean on 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 that uh, on that point you remind me uh obviously get to know lots and lots of police as an investigative reporter and they become some of um your best sources and they become your good friends a good organized crime senior detective i've known for, oh, for 20 years but after after getting a threat from a pretty serious gangster in in melbourne I spoke to him. What should I do? And he said, "Nick, you know, we're in a. I'm in a gang of of thirteen thousand people, being the Victoria Police Force, and you're in a gang of one." Um, uh, and it was a bit of a way of saying, "Well, of him you know, politely uh, and having a bit of a joke, but to say you're on you're on your own. Good luck to you." And it was uh, it's, it's still it happened years ago. It still rings in my head. Yeah, yeah, it, most definitely. I mean, yeah, when you're police or in some sort of intelligence body, you know, there's 
other people that work with you. And, and I guess if something happens to you, you know, like you said, there's a thousand people looking into that, uh, what happened. Whereas if, if something happens to you, uh, or journalist, um, like what's, what's really going to be the recourse and who's looking into that. So, um, you're, you're bang on on that point. Um, so kind of getting into the history of the CCP, um, in Australia and, and some of the criminal organizations operating there. Um, I've been doing a whole bunch of reading kind of leading up to doing these podcasts with, with yourself and, uh, Sam Cooper and looking at some of the history, uh, at least in Canada, um, uh, I can see a lot of stuff kind of really kicked off in the 1970s. And I'm just wondering, like on your end, a lot of your reporting that I was able to find uh, is more recent, but do you have any kind of um, historical perspective on like when this started or, or when it really kicked into gear for Australia, uh, at least for the influence part? I mean, the, 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 the overlap between organized crime and foreign interference or influence is uh, is murky and not well understood. There's very little scholarship about it. And at the moment, uh, as far as I, I know, it's really a, a topic of speculation and some good reporting, which paints uh, often an, a good anecdotal or, or case study picture. But no one can, can clearly point to a, a big body of evidence to say that the CCP's overseas influence arm, which is certainly very active in places like Australia and, and Canada, I suspect, is in a uh, systematic and deliberate way working with organised crime to achieve its aims. But what we do see is an overlap between the influence organisations and sometimes the espionage organisations and the business community, the Chinese business community, uh, and organised criminals. Which leads to the question, well, how deliberate is this overlap? Is it uh, simply the confluence of similar interests? So often those uh, in organised crime uh, are also business people. They're chasing money and the CCP can be a very good ally when you're trying to make uh, money through different means. Uh, is, and then, then the, you have organised crime figures to, carrying out the work of the CCP to help them make a buck. But is the CCP or parts of the CCP deliberately you know, engaging with organised crime as an organised crime strategy policy? And I, I, I don't know. I suspect it's, it is happening. But it's a really, really fascinating question and, and one that I think uh, we'll, we'll learn more about uh, in the coming years. In terms of foreign interference influence, it's been happening in Australia at least since the since the 90s in a way that was being reported uh, and, and understood. Um, but really, it took off as a significant issue. Uh, it, it was less of an issue when the CCP was less of a concern and had less uh, less ambitions for great global power. Uh, and before the, the great battle with with the US really took off, uh, so while it, the CCP's influence games were happening in Australia, I think people um, were, were less concerned about them. But in around 2015, 2016, 2017 in Australia, it became a massive political issue, and largely because there were really major scandals involving uh, politicians taking donations from Chinese Australian business people who had significant ties to United Front bodies. These are the Chinese government CCP entities uh, whose task it is to, to win influence, win friends, 
uh, and shape politics in foreign countries. And not only were these politicians taking donations from these business people and these United Front groups, but they were sometimes actually pushing the policy interests or the speaking points of the CCP in Australia. Uh, so you had a payment, donations, money, and a politician in one case uh, standing up in, in public and, and parroting some of the CCP's foreign policy talking points, uh, or word for word. And it looked like the CCP, through its proxies in Australia, was actually buying influence. Now, that was exposed, and there was an uproar, and we had new laws introduced uh, in, in Australia, which, you know, whether they've worked well is, a, is an open question, but ultimately tried to cast a, a big net of accountability and transparency over these sorts of uh, influence organisations, United Front organisations, uh, and tried to ensure there was things like a better accountability around uh, political donations. Go ahead, Calvin. Thanks, uh, Nathan. Nick uh, Calvin here. Just the, uh, I just wonder if you can uh, uh, expand on what you were talking about as it related to illicit finance, foreign interference, and uh, political corruption and just uh, maybe expand on that if you if you could, just to give uh, the listeners some more insight in terms of uh, what you're seeing in Australia relative to illicit activities uh, of these groups um, in terms of other criminal activity that you're seeing outside that <clears throat> high level illicit uh, finance, political corruption. Are you seeing uh, activities? Because I think uh, you were also reporting on some of the uh, casino issues, money laundering issues, and I don't know what other issues you were seeing, but in terms of other activities, because <clears throat> I don't know if we understand the full interconnectivity of the illicit activities, because you often hear from um, so-called experts, they go, hey, here's this, they're money laundering guys. And then other experts go, hey, here's this corruption. But what I think is often missed is the interconnectivity. And I'd be really interested, you know, from an Australian perspective, if you could kind of uh, expand on terms of the interconnectivity of the illicit activities, um, you know, from an Australian perspective. Yeah, most certainly. And I think I often find when describing these sorts of things, uh, case studies are terrific because they bring things, they, they help us paint the picture. So, so let me tell you or give you a, a great case study in point. And I think it, it it's a good anecdote as to what the overlap between Chinese or CCP influence, interference, and organised crime and donations look like. So uh, in the uh, early to mid-2000s, 2007, 8, uh, a guy called Tom Zhao, or he was, he was known in Australia as Mr Chinatown, uh, arrives in, in Melbourne. And this guy has many millions of dollars. He becomes a junket for uh, uh, the biggest casino in town in Melbourne, Crown Casino, a major listed uh, company uh, and uh, one of the biggest sort of tourist attractions in Melbourne, Australia. As a junket, Mr. Chinatown's job is to bring high wealth individuals from China, largely or often in breach of Chinese capital flight laws, uh, into Australia and to arrange their massive gambling. We're talking about whales gambling, sometimes hundreds of millions, sometimes billions of dollars uh, uh, every uh, year or two, really significant uh, high-wealth individuals uh, from China. Now, Mr. Mr. Chinatown had a very interesting backstory. He was actually a fugitive. He had committed a, a series of significant organised crimes in China, 
had fled China or was the subject of red notice uh, via Interpol, had somehow passed through Australian border controls, uh, set up uh, a very significant business in Australia that was effectively an organised crime figure. Now, what was he doing in Australia in addition to his casino work? So that casino work is bringing in a lot of money for him. He was bringing in a lot of people, uh, influential, powerful people from China. So one of his connections was a relative of the Chinese president. But at the same time, he was liaising with serious organised crime in, in Australia, largely to money launder. There's allegations of, of other significant, um, even drug trafficking, that, that sort of uh, behaviour. He was running with, with serious organised crime, with dirty drug money, and washing that through the casino at the same time, helping a whole range of people from China get into the country, including people with links to espionage or United Front work. Uh, so he had this, this business interest, this crime interest, and suddenly this CCP interest. Uh, and he was also giving political donations locally. And what we saw was a guy who, well, the Chinese government wants him. He's, he's wanted for serious crimes in China. Yet for some reason in Melbourne, Australia, he was suddenly the head of a significant United Front group that was supported by the local Chinese consulate. So it was as if the Chinese government uh, must have known he was an organised crime figure, yet turned a blind eye because he was helping the CCP and its United Front activities in Melbourne. He was funding them. Uh, he was running these, uh, these influence groups. He was helping people come into the country uh, to aid the CCP's interests. Uh, and as part of that influence gathering, he was giving donations to, to local politicians, including our Premier of, of the state. He, we exposed him uh, and... He was he was actually uh, in uh, uh, I think the Vanuatu trying to set up a, a new casino. Uh, he was uh, arrested there by the local authorities, and the Chinese government nabbed him there. I, I suspect because he was the subject of so much bad publicity, he was whacked on a plane back to China, and we've never heard from him since. He's, he's languishing somewhere in a jail cell, I suspect. But a classic example of organised crime, influence, big money, CCP, United Front work, local. Uh, uh, donations, political donations, and all happening in relative plain sight. And frankly, investigating him, there were some, some more difficult aspects to it, but, but a great deal of it was simply looking at Chinese language documents and, and doing some, some, uh, some basic internet sleuthing to, to, to pull the pieces together. Uh, and uh, it, to me, it remains one of the most colourful, crazy stories because this guy, despite his significant criminal past, he had one of the, the, the wealthiest, most expensive houses in the most expensive suburb and was really saying to the world, I'm here, uh, I'm powerful, and no one's doing anything about it. And it was as if uh, the, the systems of state in Australia simply failed to, to understand the danger of a guy like this. And the CCP was saying, yeah, well, you ripper, we can, we can uh, put people like this uh, into places like Australia and no one's going to do much about it. Yeah, you know what? Um, that kind of reminds me of, like a couple scenarios where we've dealt with people uh, like at one of our higher end hotels, um, some of the casinos, things that I never would have looked at before, never would have looked at twice before um, is like people bringing in bags of money. So we've been told, you know, uh, uh, by management at one of the hotels, like, Hey, this guy was comes in, he's rolling in his fancy car, comes in with the, uh, all the girls he's carrying a couple bags and they're literally filled with cash. And as, uh, as like a police officer at ground level, it's like, well, what do I do with that? Like, um, you know, uh, a constable or whatever it might be. 
at ground level. I'm going to take on the CCP or, or whatever other organization, whether it's just a giant criminal organization, you know, but in reading a lot of the stuff that you've put out, that Sam's put out, um, and then in a few other people we've talked to, it's really, I would say, helped police um, on those frontline levels. Even other people that I work with that have read your material, uh, read some of the books that are out there. Um, it's really opened a lot of eyes to that stuff. And then they start asking more questions, right? Um, start stopping people and saying like, hey, you know, why do you have this hockey bag full of cash? It's kind of unusual. <laughs> At least putting some people on notice that things are getting done. So, and, it, and your work too, um, one of the things that we always joke about in our, our field uh, is just how well the criminal element can be, work together. So you see the CCP with the triads um, and then working with like junket operators and people further down the line. Um, you get a lot, like it's very hard to get a lot of that cooperation and sharing of intel and knowledge uh, among governments and their law enforcement agencies. Even among law enforcement agencies, we see a lot of difficulty in the sharing of information. So a lot of things get missed. Um, people are, you know, the bad guys, for lack of a better term, uh, can move very easily, um, but police can't. Like, you know, jurisdiction comes into issue. Now you have people arguing, but um, I think a lot of what you did with your investigating, it's helped tremendously in the policing world, I guess, especially in Australia, it's put a lot of people on notice, but work like yours and, and then what other people have done in Canada or US um, has opened eyes over here too. So um, that's one of the things I always found very fascinating about the criminal element is just if they want to get something done, they can work very well together and make it happen. Whereas steering a giant government or um, like the RCMP or somebody to turn a certain direction. It's, you know, it's, it's years of policy and budgets and different things. It's, it's been a major issue in Australia. I mean, we've got a federalized system that's the state police forces often don't talk to each other, but some of the, some of the guys, uh, investigators who found or stumbled across this problem first up were, and it makes a lot of sense. They were the Asian organized crime or money laundering organized crime detectives. And they, they found these huge money trails, these bags of cash, as you described, literally being walked in and sometimes in you know, grocery bags into casinos. And they do a bit more digging and they say, well, the, the money's come from the drug trade, but it also seems like it's linked to a United Front group or someone in a, in a CCP in a United Front group. And they paint this picture, but at the end of the day, they go to their bosses and the bosses say, well, you know, give us a drug charge or a money laundering charge. I'm not interested in some uh, uh, interesting, curious overlap between the CCP and its influence activities send that off to the intelligence agencies. Now, the intel agencies are you know, a void in which information goes in and never comes out, and we very rarely, rarely hear well, what, what's, what's happening in there. Uh, a huge shift has been happening in Australia where in the past where there's been CCP influence or espionage-type activities, the, the target will be watched, looked at, and then quietly deported. Uh, there's a lot of pressure now on, on law enforcement and our intel agencies to actually charge some of these uh, entities with, with breaking uh, Australian laws. That's still not happening in, in great numbers, but there's certainly pressure. Uh, but ultimately, there was lots of these cases being found by by pretty clever cops, and it was just falling through the cracks. 
which is where journalism jumps in and says, well, can we at least put it in the public domain and, and cause a bit of a, a debate about it? But that said, you know, the deba- debate happens for five minutes. There might be some legislative change, but the law is only as good as the person who's enforcing it. And, uh, and uh, still there's, there's a lot more that needs to be done and, and the battle uh, it goes on and we must remain uh, ever vigilant. And as you say, organised crime can work fluidly ac- across borders. You've got organised um, criminal groups in, in outlaw motorcycle gangs working with uh, Chinese Communist Party-linked uh, triads, working with Italian organised crime, uh, all moving around the world using the latest digital encrypted applications, et cetera, uh, Bitcoin, and then we've got these clunky state police organisations who still sometimes don't talk to each other, and when they do, this, you know, it's, it's often not sharing as they should, uh, and the laws are, are, are a little equipped, and to actually enforce organised crime costs a lot of money. It's, it's an organised crime job with phone taps and for, uh, forensic analysis. This costs a, 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 a crap load, and you're going to have, Policing bosses going well. Why spend that? Why spend the dollars? Yeah, I don't think they they really see the downstream effects of a lot of it. So they would rather get the um, immediate kilo in a locker, right? You see the product right there. You get the gun right away. But to try and go after the head of a group, or at least it's like some higher ups, um, and see that that can make like an actual dent or uh, at the very least in a massive organization right like it it could stop a few truckloads of stuff coming in or boatloads of things coming in for a week um it's not i guess as media friendly or at least the it's not something we could put like uh on the front page news right away so maybe that's why they're not so inclined to go after it yeah yeah i mean it's, it's uh there's nothing you know the old school policing bosses like than a, a bag of dope on a table at a press conference but really uh, when we ask ourselves what is the impact of this policing and and what are we actually trying to to stop or deter uh, and if you if you try to stop uh, bond interference and influence um, how do we measure that is it is it in arrests of, of uh, people breaking the law um, and uh, do we need to see some some more people going to jail uh, uh, ultimately it's, it's it comes down to accountability there's got to be far far more of it and uh, it's, it's still still this this very difficult area to to investigate for, for law enforcement. It's, it's largely not 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 done that well, uh, and and so so much of it occurs that, uh, to this day. I mean that that said, uh, our intel agencies are, I think are probably doing a, a much better job than they were, uh, and there's a lot. You know, the, the ducks' legs are paddling beneath the, the pond surface, where you're just not seeing it out, out in the in the public. Um, but so much of this stuff, I think, should be in the public, public domain. If if this is happening, and this this is a big tension in Australia. We have our, our government entities and. Saying we don't want to annoy the CCP, we don't want to upset our trade relationship and our, our, our diplomatic relationship any, any more than, than we have already. So let's just keep this stuff. Um, let's handle it in a in a way that uh, causes uh, fewer dramas by keeping it secret. Uh, and to that, you know, journalists and the public say, "No, we demand to know if if a country, an overseas country, is, is interfering in our affairs. Let's put it out. You know, let's, let's get some sunlight there and let's let's see it and we can deal with the problem and know, and know it's happening. We want to see political donations when they flow. We want to see money laundering when it's going for our big casinos. Uh, let's talk about it. And there has been some of that. Yeah, Nick, I have a uh, uh, a couple questions, uh, and it's probably just more uh, expanding on uh, something that you touched on. Be really interested. I, I know from um, my uh, international policing perspective, uh, working with the Australians uh, over the course of uh, over a, a decade, um, up until 
2018, roughly, I saw a significant uh, acceleration in terms of their uh, impact globally. Like they were, like many uh, police forces, you know, well respected. But I went, I think they went from being well respected to being exceptionally respected uh, over that last decade in terms of their uh, punching far above their weight, particularly in this uh, global fight. And I just wondered from a journalistic perspective um, and, and coming from Australia, did you see the same thing that we saw from a policing perspective in terms of the uh, law enforcement and intelligence agencies really stepping up to the plate? I mean, th- there's no doubt that we have, uh, you know, for a relatively small country, uh, a significant ability to, to work internationally. One thing the Australian Federal Police has done really well is, is to have liaison posts all over the world. Uh, one of the the first Western uh, policing forces to actually have a a memorandum of understanding with with Chinese policing authorities, which has paid huge dividends in terms of intel sharing around the drug trade, but also leads to certain other problems because the the, the CCP security agencies only share what what they wish to share, and and uh, yeah, that's a that's a, a, diff, a different issue, but. but Largely said, Australia, one of the great things that we have is the Five Eyes uh, policing uh, and intel network. So um, Five Eyes being more famous for the, the intel side of things. But uh, now now we have uh, the Five Eyes cooperation amongst policing agencies as well uh, and you know, sharing the intel with, with Canada, with New Zealand, with Britain, uh, US, UK, uh, and leveraging these international partnerships to get uh, as much uh, bang for your buck, knowing that police forces all over the world are resource-stretched. Uh, and uh, the only way we can fight organised crime is, is to work across across borders. Uh, on paper, it, like, it looks great. Sometimes it, it pays tremendous dividends. Uh, we, we recently had a, uh, you know, we had a number of major arrests of international fugitives, significant global organised crime bosses that Australia has picked up because of its relationships with authorities overseas. Uh, organised crime, is, of course, is truly global. So if you're not Working not not only with your Five Eyes partners, but with the countries where like there's a lot of Aussie gangsters at the moment uh, hold up in, in in Turkey, um, and there's a lot of work behind the scenes where the Aussies are trying to get get the Turks on side and then build these strong relationships between uh, police to police agencies. That's how that's how work and, and success uh, occurs through those personal relationships. If you're not in that game, then you're not fighting organised crime. Uh, but still, I think it's you know it's it is. Um, <laughs> We're only getting a few, a small percentage of of, of the organised crime and and uh, the amount of 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 significant money laundering, drug trafficking, foreign uh, influence that's that's not going detected is, is is tremendous. And what do you do when? I, I think someone told me there was three hundred thousand the AFP, our federal policing agency, three hundred thousand uh, precursor chemical companies in China that are pumping out precursor chemicals. Uh, across the world, which is having untold uh, impact on on the on the drug trade, uh, and the CCP is doing very little about it. Now, why is it because they want to, to stoke unrest in Australia and elsewhere by uh, being quite happy to see organised crime and drug trafficking uh, prosper? All those international relationships that Australia has, uh, you know. It, w- only go so far to stop problems uh, such as that. Um, 
drug money laundering, uh, so much of it now goes through through uh, the CCP-endorsed financial networks in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we deal with these financial flows if China's not, if the, if the Chinese government is not assisting uh, as it should? Uh, so that, that's a major, major challenge for, for authorities here. And similar issues in uh, Canada, and it's, uh, I find it surprising, well, <clears throat> we do see some coverage in the uh, news. It's usually with you know a handful of uh, journalists, but similar to uh, Australia, uh, and this is all open source uh, material, but one individual moving 92 metric tons of precursors, all of them uh, looking congruent with the use of illicit manufacturing of drugs. And it's kind of a one headline story and it's buried. And when you uh, think about the possible implications in terms of the uh, social impact, health impact, and criminal impact, uh, and possibly national security impact of that, and that's just one person, um, I, I'm shocked that uh, it's not covered more. On that note, uh, I, I'd be interested in terms of the experience and your perspective right now, currently, with uh, the CPP, these networks, or CCP and the networks, uh, and the fentanyl issues, uh, if you're seeing any you know, connections uh, relative to those networks and fentanyl? Well, well, uh, we are, of course, um, we, we, we're often a little bit behind the US, but obviously it's been a massive, massive problem in, in the United States. Uh, but Australia has um, not, not but all, all sorts of um, uh, illicit drug types uh, are being sourced from largely from southern China. Our commissioner of the federal police, Rhys Kershaw, a few months ago, gave a significant talk. It was actually the, the Five Eyes Policing Network met in Sydney, and he, he addressed them. And he 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 called out. Now he didn't name China, but it was very clear he was talking about um, states that were turning a blind eye to this precursor trade, uh, leading to drugs flooding the market. Uh, so it's it's a massive issue. Uh, but how do you how do we stop it? I mean, all we can do, I think, initially is talk about it. Uh, Yet it remains, you know, it remains a, a very uh, unspoken about um, topic. And uh, the, the, the question that I ask myself is, is, why is that? I mean, in Australia, we have a, a permissive drug culture. I think lots of people don't really get too energised when they see the headlines about big drug seizures. Maybe police have really dropped the ball in, in selling, selling the story about how they do their work and why it matters and why, why we should care and the, and the sort of flow and effects from drug importation and corruption, et cetera. But there's a, there's a public indifference, and, and with that comes political indifference, and, and therefore the whole issue just um, bumbles away and no one's doing an, enough about it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, absolutely, we're, we're seeing uh, this huge... Uh, I mean, I, I think actually the, the precursor drug flows from, from southern China and, and elsewhere in China are, are so significant now. Um, you know, we, we've, we are, we're just overwhelmed in Australia. There's, no, there's very little we can do about it. Uh, uh, but um, there's always more we can do about it, uh, uh, and and even even our chief commissioner actually saying without naming the CCP, but saying there is a state behind this that could be doing more, and its failure to regulate the precursor chemical industry is having this downstream effect in places like Australia and and elsewhere. Its failure to regulate 
the financial flow industry is having this downstream money laundering impact in places like Australia, and we've got to call out states, these state actors that are doing this because it's, it's, it's wreaking havoc here. That was a massive step for a police commissioner to, to do and a welcome step. So why do you think, though, in light of this fact in terms of the, the toll in terms of deaths of fentanyl, why do you think that they didn't go farther and name the state when it's essentially, like, say, for example, in Canada, it's well articulated and stated by our intelligence agency that at the number one threat um, to uh, Western democracies is the uh, Chinese government currently. Australia has probably been a leader in that. And I, I'm just curious in terms of what your analysis or perspective would be, why do you think the commissioner of the AFP wouldn't take that extra step and align himself publicly with the intelligence agencies and call it out? Well, well, in fact, he did align himself with our intelligence agencies because they're not naming China. Oh, uh, So uh, it, it's interesting. In Australia, while we've had a huge public debate and at times, certain politicians have called it out. Uh, we have not gone the way of the US and, to a lesser extent, the UK in calling out the CCP for these sorts of issues. Uh, why? Well, we're not we're not the big dog like the US. We don't have the. Uh, I mean, this is what I, I disagree. I think we should, but um, uh, the naysayers would say we we simply don't have the ability to absorb the diplomatic and trade blowback that the US has. Uh, that and, and which would allow us then to call out the CCP and and, and um, not worry about those those uh, the, the, the blowback. Ultimately, it's a battle behind the scenes here. We have our Department of Foreign Affairs, which is always saying, "Let's not name China. Let's not piss off the CCP. Let's we just have a, a, a thawing of relations between our new Labor federal government and the CCP after disastrous relationships." Uh, in the years previous because we had started to, to take on uh, the CCP with our new foreign interference laws. So once again, we're, 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 you know, the turtle's been putting its, its, its head back into the shell and saying, let's, let's not annoy the, the CCP. Uh, and it's, it's frustrating because there's this discussion happening publicly and everyone knows that China's at the middle of it and, and no one's actually saying the word China. It's interesting, you know, from a Canadian perspective on this, you know, for Canadian listeners, because um, I must say, hearing that, I'm I'm a bit surprised because I've I've seen the uh, AFP and uh, the Australian Intelligence Agency like step, you know, uh, punch above their weight for lack of a better term. But here in Canada, we've been fortunate, probably, where our intelligence agency, uh, kudos to them, CSIS, and uh, recently uh, our uh, military have have spoken about being currently entangled in terms of some major national security issues with China and talking that we're actually engaged in a hybrid warfare situation uh, currently, which I thought were big, huge statements for them to uh, make. And uh, um, hearing from the Australian perspective, it uh, actually, uh, you know, is somewhat comforting to uh, see some of our leadership uh, step forward in that uh, regard. And hopefully, Someday uh, <clears throat> the policing community will step forward, but there is that awkward uh, political diplomatic uh, quagmire that I think many of the people are caught in in terms of speaking about it. But I think the role that journalism plays in this 
is probably uh, uh, a primary role in terms of spotlighting the uh, issues for the uh, public uh, currently. But I think, Nathan, you may have a, a question or a comment. I was just going to kind of add on to what you're saying where, um, yeah, it's it's getting out there, but when it's having the politicians really trust the intelligence and the policing communities when they do say something, um, but then you find they kind of want to walk a certain line, they want to fence it, they don't want to take a position, at least not a hard position on a lot of things. And that makes it hard on the policing side because you're limited in what you can put out there, especially when it's a middle of an investigation, right? So that's why, like you're saying, I think the journalism is a huge part of this, uh, a huge part of the solution. Um, so we need people digging into it from all sides um, because, you know, what one person might not be able to say, another person can if the politicians aren't going to say it or at least pick a side. Because um, even in Canada, at least we've seen with our current administration that they cozied up in a way, sometimes saying things like they admire the CCP to some degree. So it's uh, makes you wonder where, where people lie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that, that happens. It's rare, rare that it happens, but it does happen is when there is a, a confluence of, you know, you get a bunch of detectives who see a, a concerning issue like this and they, they actually sort of break ranks and go behind their bosses' backs and they work with journalists um, uh, to get this stuff out because they know that it should be in the public domain. Um, and that's the way too often things are done in Australia because we have our politicians who are too uh, politically cautious to call out the CCP. Uh, and that, that's why we need that the, the press. That's why we need um, investigative journalism because otherwise these sorts of issues are going to remain buried. I was just going to say, I think that's what you see with the current Indo-Pacific policy um, from Australia, and they're making a few different pacts with other Asian countries, uh, a few other people in the region, whether it's Japan um, yeah, was one of them, but uh, Canada's kind of getting on board with that. If you read their newest policy, it's talking a lot about partnerships in other areas. Uh, it almost seems like uh, a slow phase out of China, or at least a reliance on China, which Canada isn't really. I think they're something like 4%. I might be getting this totally wrong, but I think they're a smaller trading partner than we think they are. Um, so I think you see that in current Indo-Pacific policy from Australia, at least, uh, changing up partnerships. And um, um, you see it with like the, the implementing of some of the laws, like you were mentioning there at the beginning, Nick. Uh, was it 2017, 2018, some significant changes coming in, and now they're going after... Uh, these major heads of organizations, right? Um, like the recent arrest of Mr. C, uh, what's his name here? C. Shylop, if I'm saying that right. Um, and what I found interesting about that is uh, from the reading I've been doing that, I guess they wanted to arrest him not in Canada. So they tried to get him uh, when he landed somewhere else. So that says quite a bit about us when, you know, whether people trust Canada um, security that we have here. So, it's a fascinating question as to why he wasn't, why they didn't wait for him to uh, to get to Canada. Um, I suspect because he has, I think he's got citizenship there, uh, and it would have been a real battle to, to perhaps extradite him. I'm, I'm not sure, um, uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's a really great story. That that story of it's uh, it, I mean, he's known he's known his brother three 
but he's he's been dubbed the El Chapo of, of Asia, the biggest drug trafficker in the region, uh, who is was responsible for perhaps more, and people say up to seventy percent of all narcotics imported into Australia over the last sort of twenty years, which is a, a huge amount. We're talking about about multi billions of dollars worth worth of the drug trade. The really interesting thing about his organisation, uh, it's known as the Company or the Grandfather Syndicate, uh, and it's According to some police sources, it's this uh, sort of multinational network of, of formerly warring triad organisations who have terrific contacts in the governments in China and Cambodia, uh, uh, Laos, um, uh, Myanmar, uh, really work, working much like a multinational company. Uh, and how is this entity getting away with it? Uh, you know, how deep do their ties go in, the, say, the Cambodian government or, or the, uh, the the militaries in various uh, Southeast Asian nations? And how is this guy, Chet, above the three, as they called him, able to get away with, with his activities for such a long time? He was effectively holed up in, in Taiwan and, uh, at the end um, with significant connections to Taiwanese officials. Uh, there were some phone taps of this guy where he basically said, I, I own Macau. You know, the, the, the officials uh, in Macau are on, on my payroll. Uh, uh, but he's been arrested. Uh, he's in Australia after many years on the run. Yeah. Uh, and he's going to face justice in a, in, a, in, in a local court here, which is an extraordinary thing. Yeah. To uh, your, your point, uh, both uh, Nick and Nathan, uh, just regarding uh, why he wasn't... Uh, arrested in uh, Canada, I can safely say as uh, Nick's uh, somewhat familiar with my familiarity and relationships with the Australian uh, police and uh, also with the uh, American authorities, uh, having worked with them um, for a, a decade plus on, on these type of issues is, I think, sadly, from a <clears throat> Canadian policing perspective and a Canadian uh, national perspective, there's just a, a uh, sad uh, awareness amongst our policing partners uh, globally that the legal framework that we're working in, while the police may be doing you know exceptional work, the tools that we have in terms of our legal framework is just not conducive or congruent to the needs to work globally. You know, tackling this issue. So if they have to avoid um, working with us. Uh, in terms of collaborating, i.e. on an arrest such like this, uh, in the best interest of their own national security issues and their own public safety issues, it's sometimes best to sidestep uh, the Canadians, not because of the Canadian police, but the legal system, uh, particularly the Stinchcomb cases um, and the Jordan cases relative to disclosure that make it very difficult for uh, our foreign partners to work with us, uh, but make it very, very uh, appealing for uh, some of these uh, players uh, with a lot of ties back to Canada, like the individual you just mentioned, um, find it somewhat appealing to live and operate uh, here, uh, sadly. But Nick, you you mentioned something that I really wanted to ask uh, today, and probably, I think, probably one of the most important uh, questions, and it's something that really um, I think is really important because some of the audience that we have is is police that I policed for 33 years and there was a uh, uh, culture of us versus them with investigative uh, journalists historically 
And it wasn't until my later uh, career that I realized, you know what, perhaps there's a collaborative uh, way to work with journalists uh, that didn't compromise security issues or sensitive information by supporting uh, them in terms of open source material by uh, sharing how these groups work so they can highlight some of these. And I just, I think that's really important for police to understand maybe from your perspective in terms of how they can kind of have that safe community outreach with uh, journalists and the value that you think it uh, brings uh, respecting the timeline that we have. I mean, unfortunately, uh, Calvin, um, uh, cops often only understand the merit of the media once they retire. And uh, then they say, oh, quite a useful uh, tool at times. Uh, yeah, institutions, policing institutions, intelligence agencies, these institutions are always wary of the press. They want to, they want to, that information is power. You want to control the information. You don't want it to come out. Uh, I, I absolutely understand that rationale, but, but there is a huge benefit when you have officials working behind the scenes or, or not, or even publicly with, with journalists to get out significant issues of, of, that are in the public interest. It doesn't happen often enough. Certainly not not in Australia. I mean, the, the US actually has a really interesting culture where there is, uh, uh, and I think it's it's the it's the whole um, uh, freedom of the, of the press and and uh, sort of historical constitutional uh, vein that, that that partly promotes it. But officials give. I mean, for instance, the State Department or the or the Intel and policing agencies have these sessions where they call in journos, and it's sort of off the record, but it's formal. There's intensive, lengthy briefings about matters of, of significant national security interest, and then it's in the, in the New York Times the next day. We don't really have that, that in Australia. There's a real sort of guarded culture about information. It's a, perhaps a Commonwealth thing. Uh, uh, our agencies see themselves as very proper, and they see the media as very not proper. Uh, we shouldn't, shouldn't sort of get in the gutter with journalists. And w- what's left for people like me end up you know, building ties as best you can across the, the agencies in an informal sense. But it's a horrible way to do business because you've got to, you know, conduct yourself on encrypted applications and meet people in parks and, and you know, always worry about your, your friend who's an official, your, your source losing their job if they're caught talking to you. Um, uh, you know, you've got a very paranoid and, and, and hyper-surveillance conscious. And for what? For doing a job to inform the public about something that the public should know about, the police force wants out, the intel agency wants out, and, and ultimately, when, when it's out, informs really good public debate and political change. Uh, so I'm all for, for getting policing agencies and, and officials to work with, with journos and to any, any of your uh, police listeners. Um, you know, build a, build a relationship of trust with a local reporter in, in time. You know, obviously, you've, you've got to test the waters, but, but once you get that relationship of trust, you can use the reporter to great effect. And often the reporter's interests will be overlapping with your interests and it will help expose a, a policing area of concern that uh, that you want a government to, to resource or to legislate, uh, take a risk and do it. And um, and it, you know, it's all about informing that public debate and making the world a better place. I, I'll just say, you know, the, the famous saying is, when your enemy is my enemy, that makes us friends. And I think as we're going forward on these type of issues with, you know, transnational organized crime, these threats, that's super important for uh, police to uh, recognize you know, the value that you bring to the table and other journalists do it. So I thank you. And I know Nathan's going to wrap up here. So thanks very much for joining us and over to Nathan. Yeah. Thanks, Nick, for uh, 
taking the time to come on today. Uh, I just want to give you a chance to say how people can follow you or find your work. Where's the best places to, to see what you're doing? Uh, I think just a good old Google if you're interested. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's, I mean, my, my audience is mostly in, in Australia, but uh, I, I mean, I'm on Twitter and, and elsewhere. But if you're interested, you can just simply Google my name and see, see the work that's, that's coming out. But there's lots of journalists doing some great work in, in Australia and, and, and elsewhere. And, uh, and you know, the, the great thing is this global community we, we live in now can access information about China's organized crime in Canada and so forth. But the CCP, uh, and it's links links into the West in Australia with with the click of a button, and that's an exciting it's an exciting time to to live in when that's the case. So, so thanks for having me, guys. All, all the best. Yeah, take care. Thank you very much.